Hello everybody, this is Tina Shabo with Make Life Your Medicine and Tina Shabo School of Yoga and I am here with Brandon Elkins who is the Residential Coordinator at Hope Source, which is a private treatment center locally here in Portsmouth, Ohio for recovery and I am so honored to be able to have Brandon here with uh, my podcast today and I um, have been talking to him for weeks about this podcast and how I wanted to bring him in so that we could discuss a little bit of how the real party is in sobriety. And speaking of the real party, uh, yesterday, Brandon and I just uh, discussed how this was his five years uh, clean uh, date was yesterday. And can we uh, talk a little bit about how you feel today about that? Uh, it feels good. It's a milestone that I kind of set for myself in the beginning where it's like, because I tried recovery once the first time, I didn't like fully commit. And then when I come back, I was like, all right, I'm done figuring it out myself. I'll give you guys five years of whatever you tell me to do. And so we reached that point, and now it's kind of like I'm back with Joe for the Day program. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, that is, uh, I think that's so true. I said, um, I don't know how to describe what clicks, but I was on and off the wagon many times because I was always trying to manage my alcohol. Um, and I would even go three to three months without drinking. I think that was the, I don't think I ever hit three months. I think I was right around like two months and a week. And then I'd be like, I did two months. I know I got handled. And then right. you drank and then you, I drank to blackout. Every time I did the long-term, um, where I would try to control it for long term. And the first time I would drink after that, every time, the last two years that I drank, it was a blackout mm -hmm. and it was a frightening. So I always said the more that I tried to manage, I was successful in the time, but it was a big fail on <laughs> the, the end game of when I would uh, try to drink again. So it's right. there is something about that surrender, wouldn't you mm -hmm. say? There's, yeah, it's... it's <laughs> Well, you know, the constant in and out for me in the beginning, it was just like, I mean, at the base level, it was commitment issues. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I was, it's like, okay, I can do this. That's fine. But I, you know, and in the end it was like, man, eh, but I don't know. And I just backpedal. Um, I, you know, in that, this, that first time I tried, like I went to treatment and like, I, that was the first time that I discovered the, the self-help rooms and all that. And um, I, I never thought I had a problem with alcohol. So that was it for me. That was like the one reservation there where, you know, I did all the other things that just destroyed my body, destroyed my life, destroyed my relationships. And, but in my mind, I was like, well, I never had problems with alcohol. Mm -hmm. I'll still do that. And, and which is funny because at the meetings that I go to, they're always like, remember, alcohol is a drug. And I just ignored it the mm -hmm. whole time because that wasn't mm -hmm. what destroyed my life. And, uh, Lo and behold, you know, I went out and I was like, okay, I surrender. You know, after I went out, I, I, I drank a lot and it was worse than it had ever been mm -hmm. as far as drinking because in my mind it was all I was allowed to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I just came back and I was like, you guys get a commitment. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that's interesting you brought that up because I think there's, like for me, I smoked pop casually in high school or... Um, it's just been one of those things that I've been able to uh, do once every two years, take a half of a brownie, you know, mm -hmm. or when I went to Knoxville, I, I tried an edible. I had never, and 
You know, it's funny because I have never really, like marijuana was not that thing for me. I've never really, and, and I do kind of think this goes back to the fact I didn't care that much for it. Right. <laughs> I had everything I needed in the booze and it was never enough. There's like a quote that says, one is too many and 10 is never enough yeah. or something like that. A thousand that. is never enough. A thousand. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. Like, <laughs> and, and I've talked about this with, um, sobriety because when I finally surrendered it was the wildest there's a book I read years ago called um, oh gosh I wish I would have looked this up before we started but it was something called drink, drinking the drinking game or something like that but it was about a guy that was raised in um, Hell's Kitchen in New York City had a very violent father and he grew up drinking and then he became a really famous journalist and he was drinking his gin and tonic at a bar, his last sip. He, he, was, he was two gin and tonics into his way to his drunk evening. Mm -hmm. And he, it was, I think it's called The Drinking Life. And he said, I looked around and it was almost like his soul come out of his body. And he just saw that he was over it. Mm -hmm. And the last night that I drank, it felt like that. And it's the only time I ever drank three beers in my life, probably since I was a kid. It's the only time that, and I, it was New Year's Eve and I had told my boyfriend I wasn't drinking. And the next day I was gonna start my sobriety. And we were out to dinner and somebody instantly bought me a Blue Moon and put it in front of me. You know? so, that was my beer, Blue Moon. I drank it. And then they put a champagne glass in front of me. And then I think I ordered a bottle of champagne and then somebody bought me another Blue Moon. And so I was on like my second or third drink. And I felt that feeling. It's funny because when I read that book a couple years later, I was like, oh my God, that's what it felt like for me. I, I almost like floated up above, like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. You have a yoga class in Huntington at noon tomorrow. You have promised yourself you're done with this crap and you're on your way to getting drunk and your yoga class will be gone and you're, you won't be there. And that was it. And I went home that night and we were watching JLo on New Year's Eve. Um, and Chris, I was like leaning my head on his, uh, we were sitting up on the couch, but I was kind of like leaning my head over on his shoulder. And he goes, I can't believe you stopped. He said that to me. And I said, I can't believe I stopped. Right. Like, <laughs> And he goes, I, I just don't. And he, he even told me like three months later, he said, I got to tell you, because he never said he was proud of me because he always thought I was going to relapse. He really did. But three or four months later, I remember him saying, not too many people do that. And I'm, I can't believe you did. I'm really in awe. It's very good, you know. But there was something that happened to me because I had been practicing sobriety for so long that it finally caught. It just... That's how I feel like. I feel like, and I have not drank since then. And I had, sobriety is my first and foremost, everything in my life. And I have so many beautiful things in my life now because of it. I know that I, it has to be my priority. But something happened to my surrender, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I think our surrender comes in so many different ways. And I love hearing about people's surrender. Do you know your moment of that? Um, so... Yeah, I mean, it, so it was kind of this situation where the way I got the treatment the first time, um, I ran into a buddy, I was, well, 
an old friend, we were in jail together, he told me about the treatment center. And I come down and, you know, like I was, I was in awe of the recovery process and people who were doing it, but I wasn't ready to let go of my friends, wasn't ready to let go of the party life back home. Um, I just wasn't prepared for that. And uh, I, th I feel like the surrender, there, I don't know that I can pinpoint an actual moment of surrender. It was more of a process when, the, you know, I, I, I got out of treatment, I went back home and went right back into the stuff. Like I, I, I drank one night and was doing copious amounts of other drugs and uh, right by the end of that night. Mm -hmm. So like I knew that I couldn't stop. Um, I had a prescription for some drugs that just make you forget everything and it ruined my life and um and, and it was weird because when i got back to town i made sure i got that prescription back so it's and then here i am in and out of my daughter's life i'm like a father for just like a month or two at a time and i'm back in jail and i remember when the, the my probation officer actually showed up and woke me up out of bed he says get up you're going back to jail because he had heard about me being back out there. And uh, the, there was a moment of relief because like I was ashamed of myself because once I, once I had a mind of recovery, you, you hear that all the time, head full of recovery, belly full of beer. And um, it, it just, having an understanding of recovery in this new way of life ruined getting high for me kind of because it's like you are, mm -hmm. you're screwing up here. Yeah. You're throwing everything away. and. You know, so, so there was a lot of guilt and shame, but I couldn't stop uh, after I relapsed that first time. And um, when, when the cops threw the cuffs on me and took me back to jail, there was a moment of relief. Like I was, it's over, I'm done, uh, whatever I have to do. I had never in my life, uh, since childhood at least, I, I'd never prayed, I had never, you know, really surrendered to anything i was a train wreck and uh i remember I, I went to jail and they kept me there for a long time my po finally said you want to try treatment again i said yes please i'm done um i got really tired of like hearing my daughter on the phone in the from the jail cell mm -hmm. you know and uh here i am in a cell full of you know these men who this toxic masculinity that is mm -hmm. jail and uh Every time I hear my daughter, I'm like starting to tear up and everything. I'm like, mom, I gotta go get her off the phone. I can't do this or else I'm vulnerable, you know? And so there was that. Um, and then when I showed up just being in treatment again, like I, I was glad to be safe there, but there was like a halfway point where it's like, I never want to do this again. <laughs> you know, so like there's the consequences and stuff that keep me from using, but I, I, don't, I don't think I can go. I never want to have to, I never ha want to have to rebuild myself again. Mm -hmm. Like it was such a process, very painful, still kind of painful, but like liberating and free. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just don't want to have to start this mm -hmm. stuff over again. So it was kind of like surrender to the process. And um, yeah, it was just, uh, it was just over like a two month period where it's like whatever they want mm -hmm. out of me, they get. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, I've obtained some things. Mm -hmm. I'm just not willing to let go. Yeah. You know, I like what you said, a, a, a head full of recovery, a belly full of beer, because I'd never heard that before, but I will say that I think that 
there's almost like this space for me it was yoga mm -hmm. yoga really was my it is my path um and it just it started it reminded me of yogananda when he said that continue to do as you do but keep doing the practice like for me that's what it was like my mm -hmm. drinking just kept diminishing every year even with the blackouts like i wasn't still wasn't drinking as much having as many blackouts whatever as long as I kept going to yoga and that the light ended up enveloping the darkness. Makes sense, yes. Totally. It really, it hit, that's how it hit me. Like, I feel like, oh my gosh, this residually has taken away my desire all the way to the point to where I'm finished. Mm -hmm. That I feel like once we step up to the plate, whether, whatever that is for us, whatever that is, if it's yoga, some people it's finding the gym, finding mm -hmm. that camaraderie. I know a lot of people down here at PSKC that are in recovery and they are just, I love that place. In our, in work they there. are. <laughs> and I love that. The owner of that, his, he is amazing. I just love that whole. And I see these recovery people and that they found a home, you know, mm -hmm. whatever your home is, it can be anything. It can even be a, the practice and art that you've that can pull us, you know, I, I call it, that's your yoga, whether you're doing yoga or not. But what I have found is that once you step up to the plate there, it is, it's a matter of time. Sobriety mm -hmm. becomes how long you want to keep playing with the devil. You know, it's up to you. You got this choice. But at that point, I feel like is when the universe or the law of attraction or God, whatever your source is, that is when God literally is now like, okay, you know better now, so your consequences are going to start coming down because now you don't get out. Now, you can take a year, two years, but just now since you've stepped up to the plate and you got a head full of awareness, mm -hmm. we're going to start uh, asking you to answer to me you know and that you can no longer feign ignorance at that yeah point. right <laughs> you know what i mean it, it, or make excuses time, like, i don't know no better you know <laughs> right. i don't know no better i don't know what i'm doing and then but once you go through the process and learn some things not only about yourself but about like my effect that i had on the people around me like anyone who dared to love me got hurt <laughs> and once i was fully aware of that it, it, it it's I love the way I put it, like keep the practice, do what you do, keep the practice. That makes so much sense because eventually it's going to start hurting, yeah. you know, and just, it, it'll change. You know, it's the same thing right now with like, um, you know, my practice has always been step work. I do a 12 step thing and there's all the inventory processes at the end or in the middle. And it's like, okay, so I'm aware of the effects of all my resentments, my actions, all these things. And, you know, a good inventory is like, oh, well, come to find out I'm the problem in all these situations. <laughs> you know, and I got to a point where I couldn't blame anybody for anything ever again. I come in with that victim mindset mm -hmm. and all I was was a slave to my environment. And it's just, it, it was pathetic. And, and I couldn't blame anybody for that. I like, I victimized myself mm -hmm. at that point. And, uh, you know, like a good process of, you know, inventory was just... I played a part in all of this, you know, mm -hmm. and, 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 and even now, like I just, I'm running through the steps again and I just did a six step, which is like all my character defects. And when I finally dove into it and, and it's like, I'm in recovery, you know, and I have some clean time, these defects aren't supposed to be there again, but I wasn't aware of them until I really broke them mm -hmm. down and it, 
it just naturally works on me at that point. Like, even if I'm not trying to work the program, the program mm -hmm. works me at that point. And it's, uh, I'm so aware of things that I'm mm -hmm. not so much doing wrong, but not doing very skillfully, <laughs> you know? And uh, mm -hmm. it just, it's, it kind of just takes over to the mm -hmm. point where you have no choice. It's either let go or hold mm -hmm. on for dear life and suffer. And well, and also don't, you just, you, you know, really, I feel like it's this continuous work on ourself. Absolutely. Like Pima Chodron says that we lean into our darkness. Because yeah, I still, like three weeks ago, I was in a bad place. Like mm -hmm. I was warring in my mind with people. I was like, my pitta in Ayurveda, it's pitta dosha, the fire, you know, out of balance. I was irritated. Somebody really struck a chord with me. Somebody I love. And I, I just saw myself like uh, this, this part of me that I don't like so well. Mm -hmm. And I had to process all of that and lean into that. Lean into that fire and see that that's where I continue my work. Now, I don't feel unsafe in my recovery at this point. But I'm also, I hold a lot of humility to my recovery too. Like I know that I'm not healed fully. That I, if I got away from the practice and I had enough trauma or suffering in my life and I wasn't going to yoga and I wasn't meditating and I wasn't shining a light on myself and doing that self-deep reflection, I could be easily in a vulnerable place in my recovery. So that's why I think the practice is so deeply important to me because it, there isn't a day that I don't do my practices. You know, I really can't live without them. I mean, they're a part of me. I, because to stay on path for me is to be in the practice, like, sure. you know. Well, yeah, and that's something um, that like my sponsors always told me too, is that like throughout our recovery, it's always important that we are at least on a step, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, huh. even after we've went through them, we're at least focusing on a step in our lives, living the step out and, um, Oh, I like that. I didn't know that. Well, right. Well, and, and it comes down to like, I, I always have to be, you know, there's, there's different like schools of thought w with it where it's like, uh, there's the 10th the step, which is like, we take daily inventory and when we're on promptly admitted it. And, you know, that's kind of just recovery from that point mm -hmm. on, you know, it, it's weird. Cause like the, the 12 step process, depending on which school of thought you come from, it's like one through nine is the work. And then like, 10, 11, and 12, it's just the way we live from now on. Mm -hmm. So I'm in 10, 11, and 12 the rest of my life, but the, all the work at the beginning is to like get through it. But but you can always come back to one. For sure. Is what you're saying. Well, because well, I, I like have it. to re-inventory. I go blind mm -hmm. to myself. Sure, we I do. Yes. Aware, you know? So right. I have to do the actual mm -hmm. inventory again. Like, okay, this is what, the, these are the resentments okay. and all the petty stuff that you've amassed over the past couple of years because you're not paying attention. Mm -hmm. You're getting wrapped up in yourself. You're getting wrapped up in your future. You're getting wrapped up in work or whatever. Mm -hmm. All these things that recovery gave you, but you're forgetting mm -hmm. to stay in the process. Wow. Yeah. You know, in my yoga school, I started us out with the root chakra. And I go all the way up the chakra system mm -hmm. in that eight months. So the, the eighth month is the crown chakra. But like this next month is month four. We'll be on the heart chakra. And the, the reason I do that is because I, I like to build that root foundation in the beginning, which is root chakra. And that's disciplines, habits, clearing, and building your foundation of your practice. Because I've said before, and I say this all the time, I said it in my yoga class this morning, you work out the wobbles before expanding. You, you, 
um, stability before expansion. You must build the structure of your life, you know, to ground everything. And I feel like it's like that with sobriety. We must have these rituals and because otherwise it's the distracted mind that ends up taking us back to our addiction anyway, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> if we're not sitting with ourselves in that root, you know, grounding um, and... I feel like there's so much parallelities between AA or you know, all these different ways that people find recovery. I feel like they're all so parallel, the foundations are all so clear, mm -hmm. even though they're from different languages or belief systems, they're really so similar in structure all the way around, don't you? For sure. Well, you know, this is the reason, so there's the yoga practice, it's all about, uh, you know, I, I, I don't pretend to have an understanding of it but from talking to you we're doing a lot of the same things across the board and it's just different methods of getting there mm -hmm. and um i think that's the reason i liked uh like the refuge recovery approach so much mm -hmm. because like i do the 12-step practice that's that's just that is my daily routine my ritual mm -hmm. um i always like to say that so let's compare it to exercise or whatever. So it's like, if I'm trying to get strong, if going to, uh, if going to the gym is my ritual, my 12 step process, then, you know, refuge recovery was kind of like the B12 shot, you know yeah, what I mean? Right. The extra steroid <laughs> that like really pushed that yeah. practice and made me get like really good gains out of my practice mm -hmm. because refuge recovery, the way they kind of explain it was, um, we just suffer an extreme version of the human condition, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so it's like, we're not bad people. We just take it to the extreme, yeah. you know? And it's, so it's kind of the same process and just understanding that. And, um, but yeah, it's all about, you know, giving up, giving up our, some, for me, it was giving up my desires and trying to like flow with whatever the universe expects from me and quit trying to control it. Just letting, mm -hmm. um, it's kind of hard to explain, but it, it's just that being part of. Being. Yeah. Being, yeah. You know what? I remember the first time I met you, and you know, I, I, I have this gift, I tell people. <laughs> I always remember the first time I met meeting people. And I don't know if I remember the first time I meet it, just anyone, but always the people end up being parts of my life, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I had went into, um, I remember the first time I met you, actually met you was at a refuge meeting. Mm -hmm. And um, I really liked that meeting. It was pre-COVID, but um, I just liked the group there. And I would, when I would finish work early on Wednesday, I'd just walk, walk over and, uh, any chance I had, I would go. Sometimes it's only once a month, but I just enjoyed the vibe of refuge recovery. And I always said I tried to do the rooms throughout my times of trying to get sober. And um, uh, I don't know, the rooms never grabbed me, but refuge recovery meetings did because it started out with a meditation. And I like that language of meditation. And I like not identifying as an alcoholic. I've, I've always had a problem because in... In yoga and Buddhism, we're always trying to not identify with anything. Like we're trying right. to just like clear all of our identification. So I never really, and I, hey, I fail the test. If I'm in the room with alcoholics, I'm an alcoholic. I'll raise my hand. I'm not saying I'm not, but 
I also like, when I gave up alcohol, I got to a point where I was like, I don't want to associate with it, that word. I'm not, that word is not, is the opposite of what I am. I, so like saying I'm an alcoholic all the time, that to me, I'm kind of like, I'm over that. Mm -hmm. I've already done that program. I, but refuge meetings, I like that you don't, there's no uh, identification and, and I love that. So when I would go to the refuge meetings, I really liked that. But what I always remembered about you is I just loved your ease. You know, you got this easeful way about you. It's very gentle. And, um, and well, and you and I have built a friendship and we can talk forever about right. stuff. Like. But, and then I would see you at uh, the Lofts. Yep. Yeah. Um, so. I remember, uh, I remember, and I think this was actually pre-refuge, but I, I always sat in the lofts. I'm, me and my buddy, Andrew, we actually got our, like, our first year clean on the porch there. Um, we would meet up there every morning before going to our outpatient groups, and then I'd go to work or whatever. But we just stayed there and figured this stuff out together. I was writing on step work. He was just asking me what it was all about. <laughs> and... Um, I remember I'd always see you coming in with your laptop. I was assuming that you were writing. That's what I was assuming. And then uh, I, I remember there was just one day I seen you in there all the time and you had these really cool fuzzy boots on. <laughs> yeah. And I just had to comment on them. I had to comment on them. And that was the first time I actually had the courage to say hello. Because, yeah. you know, because I'm not from the community. Um, I have trouble fitting in with, uh, well, I don't have trouble fitting in, but my perception was is that I don't fit in with the general society. And I mean, you were just, uh, your vibe was welcoming, you know, mm -hmm. like I knew that for some reason I knew that you weren't going to be like, Ooh, stop talking to me. You know <laughs> I mean? And I love your boots. Yeah. So. <laughs> hey, everybody loves my boots. And I have two pairs of those cause I was so afraid they'd discontinue the first pair. So I went ahead and just bought the second pair. <laughs> nice. Um, they call me frozen at the life center cause I wear my Alaskan boots, my big furry coat. Mm -hmm. um, in the winter time, you know, um, that is funny because that is true. And then, because the reason I rem just remember that is when I met you at the refuge meeting, you're like, Oh, you're one of us. You yeah, said that I now did. I remember. And I was like, yes, I know you from the lofts. Okay. Okay. So the lofts was our first meeting. Okay. Cause I remember that meeting too, but that is, uh, you know, I, I feel like, um, some people might take that the wrong way or, but no, I, I, I do I do say that you're one of us. Yeah, it's like it's so cool that you're one of us. Like, yeah, and it's kind of like it too. It, it's weird because like normally I guess someone would interpret it like, oh, you're an alcoholic or an mm -hmm. addict or whatever, and, and labeling. But it's like I was just so happy. Yeah, I was happy because I already had an interest in who you were, and then when you showed up and what I deem sometimes my territory, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was like, oh, cool, like yeah. let's let's do this. You know? Hey, you know, uh, I, I'd rather be with people. I was just saying this to one of my clients yesterday. Um, they said, this girl is just so, I just love her. She's, but she's got a lot of tats. You know, she's, uh, she's had a rough, she, she'll tell you, she's had a rough life. And she is one of my favorite clients. And she's like, you know, she goes, I just want to tell you that uh, I, I, you're one of my best friends. I, see, I hear that a lot from my clients because my clients really are my best friends. And. She goes, and I didn't know what you'd be like when I met you. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, no, you're just so real. I just want to let you know. I'm like, let me tell you something. If I'm going to hang out with people, I like people like me, the working class. Like, that's me. Yeah. That's who I am. I, 
And I will always be from that tribe of people that we're doing the best we can, we're flawed, but we're healing together. Because I say in my recovery, I would not be sober this long without <laughs> my people. Right. You know what I mean? Um, and that to me is what life is about. You know, sharing our struggles, uh, being there for each other and being honest and open, mm -hmm. not hiding from our stuff. And I say this, it's very hard in culture to find people that are just real because most people are out there still faking it. Let's face it. If yeah. you've never had any addiction in your life or it never, but you're still hiding from yourself because you don't have people you can openly, you're faking it in life. You're acting like everything's okay, but you're not able to say, I'm wounded. I have a problem, you know, and you, so in the recovery groups, usually we find those places that we can say that and we look around, we see other people saying it and we realize that there's nothing wrong with us. Yeah. Like, damn, we're all wounded. This is okay. And that's what I love about the rooms. Like I love that about any groups that in yoga, we do it in my yoga school and in yoga in my class this morning, I say that we don't hide from ourselves with each other. You know, we don't, and you see people that are hiding. They're the people that are giggling or still faking it or uncomfortable in their practice because they're not realizing this practice isn't about the poses as much as being delicate. Mm -hmm. Allowing yourself to be a little vulnerable in front of other people. And when you can learn that and you can learn that you can in sacred spaces with people that will love you even more, then you can begin to say, wow, I, there's something wrong with me. You know, I don't need a pill to make me feel better in life. I don't need a pill to hide this ugly side of myself because there's something wrong with me. Right. No, there's nothing wrong with you. You are just fine. But you, this is something that should be brought to the surface, released. Somebody should hold space for you. And let's do it now, you know. So yeah, that's something I've always appreciated too. And it's, it's really been my main goal is to transparency is like what I focus on is remaining transparent because so we're in a town full of newcomers mm -hmm. to the recovery process. It's just kind of what Portsmouth is at this time uh, because we have all the treatment centers and it's a beautiful thing. We're providing services regardless of like how the community might interpret that. But, uh, for, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people who have inspired me through this and they got all this, you know, this clean time, but my short five years is actually way above what's in these rooms most of the time. So I try to remain transparent because I don't want people to think that, you know, the recovery process is this, okay, I'm going to come in, I'm going to quit doing drugs mm -hmm. and, you know, hang out with other recovering people and it's all going to be gumdrops and rainbows the rest of my life. And yeah. I just try to remain transparent. It's like I continue to struggle with myself in life and I continue to stay in the solution, the process of recovery and continue to reevaluate myself and make adjustments as mm -hmm. I go. Because every time I fix one thing, whack-a-mole, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. every time I fix one thing, another one shows up. <laughs> right. And that's the reason I try to stay transparent. And you know, and people always appreciate that when I do. Uh, and, and, and the thing is, is it's really like an admission for myself too. It's like, mm -hmm. if I'm saying this out in public, then I am now responsible for fixing it. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of yeah. how I put the accountability on myself because mm -hmm. now people can watch for it. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not doing anything about it, then am I really recovering like I say I am? Yeah. So I try to put 
I tend to put weight on my shoulders myself. Um, and, and that's another thing. It's, uh, it, it reminds me of uh, oh, like the old um, Eight Mile Eminem movie. Yeah. Where it's like if you expose yourself first, you're removing the ammo from anyone else who can try to harm you as well. Oh, and, that's so um, true. And, and yeah, and so I was like, I, I don't pretend to be perfect. I don't. I love the transparency, and I, I love that there is a there is a solution, and mm-hmm. those spaces allow me to just be comfortable with who I am. Because mm-hmm. I, I always say it in the end, the best thing. Yeah, recovery has given me uh, financial security. Um, I'm employable now. I, I have all these creature comforts that really don't mean nothing, but they're nice to have. And but the best thing that recovery ever gave me is that I no longer ever, ever have to pretend to be someone I'm not. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the most beautiful thing that recovery has ever given me. I don't care if you're the CEO of the company that I work for mm-hmm. or the newcomer coming in the rooms with like one day clean, mm-hmm. you're going to get the same person. Mm-hmm. And that yes. is the most liberating, comfortable mm-hmm. thing I've ever, I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. Nothing can top that and nothing will ever take that away from me. Mm-hmm. I love that you brought that up because um, satya is truthfulness and it's a yama, uh, the yamas and the yamas. And uh, this is funny because when I first started teaching yoga, I didn't get fully sober until my 500. I finished my 500, so I was teaching for about a year. But as I said, my drinking kept going diminishing because of the practice. But I still had a couple blackouts out last year because every time I tried to drink, I couldn't drink right, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember going to a um, teach a class in the morning and having a hangover. I only did that one time. And here I am sitting there, hungover, reading a spiritual paragraph to people lying in Shavasana as their teacher. You know, mm-hmm. and me knowing how much I was just repulsed by myself in that moment, like that shame, like this is so inauthentic. You have no right to be sitting here and you have no right to be leading people in breath and practice with a hangover. Like it just, that just, those little things in my last year of trying to manage an alcohol addiction was the like the the needles on the haystacks or they whatever you know it was that I was that was it it's all I could or not needles on the haystacks but the straw that breaks the camel's back it was like the last and that was the only time that I ever did that but it hit me and I still remember the way I felt looking at all of those people in that class in Shavasana and knowing that I was a fraud you know, in that moment. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I remember when I, that New Year's day that I woke up and went to my yoga class in, um, the day, my first day of full recovery from my first day of me saying, I'm surrendered to this. I'm committed to this. And I, in Shavasana, I was crying because I was like, I was still scared. Like, are you going to be able to do this girl? You know, you know, because you're not so, the beginning of recovery is very delicate. And I tell people, because I meet people that come to me, and you just said something very important I think we should talk about. People jump into recovery and they get that little bit of a cotton candy unicorn cloud as they're on the puffy pink cloud. cloud. The pink cloud. 
And people have reached out to me and they're like, oh yeah, we're in this uh, three months in, this is so easy. And then, and I have a friend that I love so dearly. She's got about eight months and she just came to her hard line a month ago. Cause she's like, it's just great. I don't even want to drink. And I was just kind of waiting for this to happen to her. Cause I know it happens to most of us. She had a bad month, you know, and she, I got a text from her that said, thank you for being there because I know I would have drank if I didn't have you or because she had really trusted me with the fact she had a drinking problem. She, she hadn't been able to feel like she had a, and I told you the reason I wanted to do that meeting on Friday nights yeah. is for women and alcohol because there's a lot of meetings for addicts, but there's not a lot for just women and alcohol right now. So I have one on Friday evenings. Um, anybody is welcome to reach out to me about that and I'll give you a private um, invite. But she, she said, because I would have went back because she had tried to quit several times and she always ended up drinking again, you know. But, and she powered through and here she is and she's strong again. And I said, see, these, is, these relapses come, but they go, mm -hmm. you know, or not the relapse, but the feeling that leads us to the relapse, it will pass. And you get back, maybe the pink cloud isn't going to be pink every day, but it sure is a beautiful life, yeah. sobriety, right? The party really is in sobriety. For sure. Well, there, there's no lack of excitement, that's <laughs> right. for sure. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and that's what I always tell, that's what I always tell the guys that I work with is, um, you know, uh, stay the course. That's the phrase that I put out there, just stay the course. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, there are embrace the suck is kind of what I'll tell them. It's like just embrace it, work with it, use it, because it's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be, um, it's not going to feel pleasurable or there's times where I don't even, there's times I'll reach certain times in uh, my life where it's like, am I even spiritual at this point? Because, mm -hmm. you know, the recovery is a spiritual process. That's what was lacking in addiction. and. Yeah. I, it's the practice. We, you know, we practice the, whether it's yoga or we practice meditation or we practice spiritual principles like the 12-step program say. And it's a practice. We're not going to perfect it. There's going to be lapses in our program that don't need to lead to a relapse. And, and I always tell them that. Like, it's going to suck sometimes. You're going, I'll never forget this. I'll never forget this. I, my, this was when I was in my first year of recovery. And I was starting to get frustrated with certain personalities, and I was starting to, uh, uh, as we say, cop resentments. And I was just like, okay, maybe I'm around too much. Maybe I'm just too much exposure. Maybe I need to step back because I'm starting to get either resentful or irritated. Or, and I remember my sponsor straight up. He said, "No, f that. You need to go out there and get your freaking feelings hurt and deal with it." And I was like sure whatever because I promised you I'd do whatever you told me and I did and I got my feelings hurt and we worked steps on it and worked through it and I was stronger because of it mm -hmm. you know I learned how to deal later on and not set myself up for those mm -hmm. harms you know because yeah. I was the culprit you know yeah. what I mean yeah here I am feeling like a victim and in the end it's like I was the perpetrator you mm -hmm. know just allowing these people to control the way I felt or thought about myself and yeah, just stay the practice. Mm -hmm. Keep practicing. Yeah. We don't. It never ends. You know, and well, what you were just saying 
what we do when we go back to our drug of choice is we're hiding from ourselves mm -hmm. because when we go back, what is the first thing we do in that addiction state? Because I don't know about you, but my addiction got very isolating. Like Absolutely. I had already gotten rid of all the friends that I drank with. I had already cleared the house because I kept blaming it on my friends first. Like if I didn't hang out with them, I guess well, I was still drinking by myself, right. you know? And what would my mind go to the minute that I would start that drinking is how everybody, the warring, the so-and-so and the so -and -so. It's never a positive, like you're not sitting there doing your addiction and thinking of ways to manifest beauty in your life. <laughs> you know, you're really down there in the muck. It's a mm -hmm. negative vibe to begin with. But when you get sober, it's not so easy because you're processing things as you go. You're taking the hits. You're taking, you know, I took a hit recently with just something that kind of, I saw a light in someone that, that I really had always respected and really saw what a, something really dark in them that, and I realized that was ugly, you know, but the truth is, is that I processed it, moved on and was able to even process that human being like as just a flawed human being that's still yeah. good. I don't have to throw the whole, you don't throw out the baby with the baths, sink water, you know, you look at humans and say, that was ugly, but people aren't really what they do once or twice. It's, it's what people can grow too. We don't have to put them in a box. Like, and if we're walking around saying, you know, that was a crappy thing. And maybe that's not one of my best friends, but this person also did this, this, and this good for me. Like, I feel like in recovery, we're able to bring that gratitude back in and say over and over and over that that wasn't about you as much as about them. And you focus on you and let everybody else focus on themselves. If you want to judge someone, take a good look in the mirror and say, you can always do better not to your neighbors, your kids, to right. your friends, to your, cause I'm a, I'm a control freak anyway. And I have a hard time keeping my business to sure. the person in the mirror. Otherwise I, I have to watch myself get a little bossy to people, but only the people I love. I'm a, I'm a people pleaser and fixer. What can I say? Those are my patterns, you know, but yeah, I, I slipped into that in recovery. Come and find out I'm also a codependent you know i i need right. people to need me and it validates who i am and all these crazy mm -hmm. things but it's not just it's like i think I'm, i i i have this narrative in my mind that i'm helping people i'm doing these right things but i'm contributing to suffering by like robbing people of their experience mm -hmm. you know and so because yeah. i'm trying to manipulate their world so that they have an easier way mm -hmm. through but i forget how much suffering and conflict I had to go through in order to be where I am now. And if I rob that from other people, then I'm robbing their experience. It's going to lead to a more mm -hmm. fulfilling life. And I just need to step out of the way because I'm yeah. a control freak. It's like, mm -hmm. you're, you're living this life. There's a solution. Let me mm -hmm. just give it to you. Well, you know, it's something that's earned. You know, something came to me when I first heard that, when I started taking my trauma-sensitive training in yoga years ago, and they that came to light, like, wow, you're robbing people of an experience. But then the other thing that was shocking to me is you're also, when you do that, you're kind of saying to those people, and I'm bad with my kids on this because I always want to tell my kids and not let them have their journey. You're also kind of almost in an unconscious, subtle way telling the people that, you can't do this. You're not strong enough on right. your own. I, you need me. And I started seeing that myself like, oh my goodness, like, that's so true. Like, I'm pretty much not validating that someone has um, courage and strength and power 
to do things when I am always trying to get involved or fix. Yeah. It's almost as if we're trying to rob, like remove their agency. Like they're like they are an acting player in their life, but here I am. Like, look, this is what you need to do. Do all these things, and here I'll even help you with it. I'll mm -hmm. be your case manager, apparently, yeah. instead of just a mentor or someone who's helping guide them mm -hmm. through it. And it's and, and anything that was given to me, I didn't appreciate. Mm -hmm. My parents yeah. gave me a car, and I just drove the hell out of that thing mm -hmm. to the ground. And I, you know, and then being in recovery, I got this crappy little truck. And I babied the thing because I worked for it. I worked on a hickey salary just to, you know, flipping burgers just to buy this thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I appreciate it. Baby it. And it's a junker, mm -hmm. you know. But, uh, you know, and I've had much better vehicles given to me by my parents growing mm -hmm. up. And I didn't take care of them. Barely mm -hmm. put gas in the thing. That's so true. <laughs> well, it's even advice. Somebody gives you advice. How many times in our life have we gotten good advice? We get it, right? Mm -hmm. How many times in life have you taken good advice? Yeah. <laughs> Probably never. Me right. too. Like, it's like I remember the tailspin of the unrequited, unrequited lover archetype that I was in for years with relationships, men, mm -hmm. where the same thing happened over and over, noncommittal. And then I was in this tail tailspin of oh but they'll commit they um they just like space or making excuses and then yeah you get the dump and they end up with a girl they do commit to right. <laughs> but you're always playing and then the next one comes along and they'll commit yeah they'll commit to the next girl because you have created this dynamic like I went through a little space of four or five relationships like that and my friends telling me he, this isn't going to work, this isn't going to work. Like, I wouldn't, wasn't willing to take advice until it finally came to me what, that this was a healing in me. I didn't need to be looking for love until I wounded that part of myself that was able to be a capable partner in relationship and to not be afraid to say, I need this, I need this, I do not tolerate this. And when I was that strong, the right guy came in. For sure. You know, because I was like, I won't, this is what I won't tolerate. And I was able to stand my ground and heal that part of myself that was able to, you know, uh, just kind of negotiate relationship finally. And that, that kind of happens too. But you don't take the advice of people that say, you know, you're, you're picking the wrong guy or you're, you know, you're doing this because you think you're just a part, a victim in this. Mm -hmm. Like, well, these guys come along and why is this happening to me? But the truth is you are attracting yeah. these lessons and that is a that's a beautiful thing that I've learned in the last few years that I find such a beautiful part of this world that we that the lessons are going to come mm -hmm. <laughs> you know like that quote with Eckhart Tolle he says everything in your world is here to increase your consciousness that is what the world is here to do and how do you know that this is the lesson you need because this is the lesson you're having at this moment. Right. <laughs> you don't have to question the lesson. Like It's because it's here. That's why you know it's a lesson. Yeah. And that always like, I, I have that marked in that book so that I can just open the book and read that sometimes. Like, remember, appreciate the lesson. For sure. Yeah. Well, and that's something, I remember the last time I was in jail, I read this book. It was written by a chaplain. I can't remember the name of the book, but the, the author stressed not only showing gratitude for the things I've put positive value judgments on, 
but showing gratitude, praying gratitude, whatever, because it's a chaplain. Um, praying gratitude for even the difficulties, the things that I've labeled as negative. So uh, to make sure that I'm praying for even the hardship or like being grateful for the hardship I face in life. Uh, and, and I remember I started doing that because I was in jail. Um, I don't do well in jail. I talk <laughs> a lot of crap and I can't fight. And, um, and I remember, uh, you know, I was praying I was praying because that was just the closest thing that I'd growing up. The, the only lesson I had in what is a higher power or God or whatever. And I've been told I need to rely on that. Mm -hmm. So I read this book, told me to uh, pray for the hardship. And I'm like, it was real superficial at first. Like, thanks for throwing me in jail. Thanks for getting me beat up today. Thanks for all this. But after a while, I was like, no, really, thank you. Because mm -hmm. I'm not coming back. You know, like yeah. I never want to be in this position again. And that was part of my surrender process that we talked about earlier. I never want to go through this again. Mm -hmm. And whatever, you know, whatever this power demands of me, sure, mm -hmm. let's just, I'll try it out. Mm -hmm. And um, it came from the hardship. The mm -hmm. hardship is the stuff that has made me who I am, mm -hmm. you know, and as long as I don't get too attached to the pleasures in mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's just all those lessons. See, it, the comforts, I, right? Well, and it comes down to you, yeah, comforts yeah. for yeah. sure. I, I, yeah. I, I have a lot of these creature comforts, yeah. and I get attached to them. You mm -hmm. know, so, and that's the thing. Nobody can take my recovery away from me unless I give it away. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing. You know, someone can repossess my car. Someone mm -hmm. can kick me out of my apartment. Someone can, you know, rob my bank account or whatever. Mm -hmm. and all this material things. But the, the thing that I need to place more value on is something that can't be taken away, mm -hmm. which is my integrity. Yes. my connection with the higher power mm -hmm. or whatever and I just see like because you were talking about the relationships and, and, and you know enabling other people or whatever it be and what it comes down to is what is my objective or what is my object of desire which you know because I'm a sick person I guess because I, I my object of desire is this relationship I'm getting attached to it I don't want to let it go and, and, and the whether it's good for me or not, is what am, what am I compromising to hold on to this mm -hmm. desired object? Mm -hmm. If it's a person in my life, am I now compromising my principles that were mm -hmm. taught to me by a 12-step program? Am I letting go of my meditation practice? Am I stop going to meetings? My, you know, it, mm -hmm. What am I compromising to yeah. achieve this goal? And if I'm compromising the things that my core values and beliefs mm -hmm. and stuff, if I'm compromising that to achieve the goal, then the goal is wrong. Mm -hmm. And I just had to come to that understanding. Like, mm -hmm. what's really important. What do you give up to gain? Right. You know, there's a quote, and I can't remember the exact quote, but it's like, it kind of goes with addiction. What do you give up to gain it? And it's always your children, mm -hmm. your time with your loved ones, your valued relationship, your parents, your your time taking care of your body, like at the gym. Your, and what do you give up to gain your sobriety? And you're giving up the crap. Yeah. The, Bunch of all the crap, yeah. you know, and that is the light, and the addiction is the darkest of the dark because it takes it all. Yeah, but the light shines a light on that, and it's just gone. I mean, I want to say um, before we end our end to where we're at is I want to talk a little bit about um, the art of ritual and how important it is, and and you know with the the name of the podcast and i wanted to name it the parties and recovery because we we 
we think that there's a party in addiction. And I think in, when we're young and when we first started drinking, I even look back at those times when we all would get a bottle of Strawberry Hill, down it as fast as we could, puke, and go home. You know what I mean? At 14 years old. Or it really, when I look back at all of the years of my partying, it really was a little dimsel. It was, it was it, it, dismal. I, I look at it and I think, wow, it was such a perception that's so wrong. Like, my life now is so full of love and valued relationships. And I, I, I love who I am. I love the people around me. I elevate to high vibrational humans walking around me here. You know, people that are being better themselves and aren't doing crappy things. Or um, I, I feel like all the way around my life really is a party now. And one of the things that I started, I always love to cook and make food for people and have drinks. And I still make mocktails and get in that line of teas that I have. You know, I mix them into these beautiful tonics and I take herbs. And I, I was just, I made a drink for somebody this week and I put some organic sweet and sour and a squeeze of lemon and lime. And I took a, a drizzle of a cherry syrup that I made myself from organic cherries, crushed them up, you know what I mean. And I put a little bit of kombucha raspberry kombucha and then i topped it with some topo chico right and then i put a big orange slice on the corner and i gave it to him they were like whoa <laughs> you know and it's that ritual it was my last massage of the day and we sat there and i said that is a wellness drink that has a little bit of my blueberries in it from my tea that's a blueberry bliss with and we drank that and she was like wow this is like a cocktail but no alcohol I'm like that's right it's a mocktail and there we, these rituals we're still worthy of mm -hmm. these rituals we still should have just because uh, we we associate having a drink with having a drink we can have a drink we can have a drink of something non-alcoholic that is herbal and can make us feel amazing and still have that ritual and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about New Year's Eve and my party this year and I just had a few of us it was, it was kind of a small sweet party playing some games but i remember it every single bit of that night i felt like i was surrounded by loving and beautiful souls you were here mm -hmm. um I, it was a great time uh i think we were i know the next morning i took a hike with banjo you know what i mean out in the forest because it was a pretty day and i was um asleep by one which is a late night usually i'm asleep by about 10 30 but what i'm saying is i had a beautiful night, great food, and I felt amazing the next day. And you remember it. And I remember <laughs> it. And I didn't do anything stupid like waking up, headache, no hike, and looking at my texts and seeing what, or seeing if anybody got in an argument or remembering there was just nothing but love, you know? Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to kind of talk about that night, and uh, um, I thought it was very sweet to me that there were so many people here. There was a few people from the rooms here and that uh, we were all able to still have a party, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And don't get me wrong, when I first showed up, I was the first man in the house. So it was like, <laughs> it was a bit awkward and I didn't know the other women, um, but you did really well to make me feel comfortable. And uh, it was just, it was such a cool time to like, I would. <laughs> Uh, I was interacting with, well, just interacting with other humans, <laughs> you know, it's like that don't exist um, in the rooms, and it was a New Year's party, and it wasn't loud, it wasn't obnoxious, it wasn't, um, 
sketchy, mm-hmm. you know? And, yeah. And I remember the, the mocktail you made me was, uh, it was so delicious. And I, I was really nervous about it, you know, because mm-hmm. um, it's like, okay, so is this the party ritual? Is that going to be triggering? I have mm-hmm. not engaged in any party rituals mm-hmm. since then, you know, like yeah. I went and hung out with recovering people and that was it, like people from the rooms. And I remember when I first uh, took the drink, what is it, seltzer in there or something? Um, uh, yeah. I think I made, uh, that night I made uh, faux amaretto sours. Okay. I think. I I remember when I first took the drink, it reminded me of what um, my mom's old, like, strawberry daiquiri wine coolers <laughs> tasted like. Yeah. Not so much like the flavor of it, but the aroma and sure. like, that mm-hmm. came with it. And I was instantly, like... Because I almost felt like I was doing something that I was felt guilty for, and then yeah. I just drank. I was like, "This is so freaking good!" And then, and then knowing that it wasn't like alcoholic, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, so I can't engage in these rituals. Mm-hmm. That was sure. a lesson to me. Yeah, that was a lesson to me. I can engage in these rituals, and if I knew this before that night, mm-hmm. I might have been—I call them normies—been mm-hmm. able to like go to these places, some of these more formal gatherings mm-hmm. where I feel completely out of place because. You know, we live in a real drink pushy yeah, kind we of do. society, mm-hmm. and um, I think if I just had something in my hand mm-hmm. where no one's offering me a drink, I'd be okay. And, yeah. But I really like that. And then another friend from the rooms that I, I do engage with showed up with his girlfriend, mm-hmm. and uh, it just it was just real comfortable from that point. You made me feel comfortable having him there as almost my comfort animal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. Know? And uh, it was just a fun time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember I had to leave early though to open yeah. Refuge Recovery. Yeah. Well, you know, um, when I go to the, there's a, you know, when they do those wine and art things where they paint a picture and everybody's drinking, Mm -hmm. I take my own bottle. It's called Frey. F-R-E is a company and they make non-alcoholic champagne, non-alcoholic rosé wine, non-alcoholic wines across the board. What they do is they do everything that they do with alcohol, making the wine or the uh, Chardonnay or the champagne, and then they take all the alcohol out. Hmm. So it has like the essence and the taste, even somewhat of wine or whatever it doesn't have that heat that fire that's going to trigger like a relapse but it's when i take my bottle of champagne to these events uh everyone is wants to taste they're like that's good Mm -hmm. like last time it's like an 18 dollar bottle non-alcoholic wine and i'm like wanting to be stingy with it but then i'm like (laughs) i'm wanting to share it everybody loves it and i hosted a party with david kilroy Mm. and when he uh sent me a text it was an entrepreneurial speaker series and um there was um, several, there was a lawyer there, Matt Seifert, yep. and Matt Setters was an accountant. Anyway, we had speakers, and they were serving beer at the, the Glockner's building, and they were serving some other drinks. And David said, do you want to bring some of your mocktails? And I was like, well, heck yeah. yeah. So I took a non-alcoholic um, a spritzer of some kind, and then I made like blueberry mocktails. And, oh my gosh, I made my red medicine. It's called, it's got pomegranate uh, juice, cranberry juice. It was a Christmas event. And I put cinnamon in it and all these, uh, I mean, cinnamon and some other things. And then I uh, shook it up with, um, uh, there was something else, my blueberry bliss. Mm -hmm. And it was called a red medicine. And people were standing in line like, hey, can I have more of that? I mean, I was a bartender all night for (laughs) non-alcoholic drinks. But people do want 
to try these things. You know, we, it's sad that we can go to a restaurant and order any kind of alcoholic drink in the world and people like me can go in there and if you say club soda, they look weird at you. Like, can I just get a club soda? Oh, I guess. Um, there should be a standard knowledge of if, just how to make an easy mocktail. And it's so easy. You can take, I was a bartender years ago. I mean, I was a bartender for um, many years. I hope this doesn't cut off in one minute. We'll know in just a moment, 